Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Joshua Kahn with the news. The Dairy Public Library has reported the theft of several books this weekend. A list of these missing tomes has been released to the public this morning. If you find Storytelling for Dummies, The Point of Plot Points, or Endings, How Come? Please contact the nearest librarian. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hi there, constant readers. And today we are covering the second half of the book Colorado Kid, which was our Patreon selection by Bryant Burnett. And we have Ben leading our discussion. Ben, take it away. All right. I'm uh, I'm excited for this discussion. I watched David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, as well as the new Charlie Kaufman film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And I thought we could just spend a while comparing and contrasting the two directors' use of surrealism and their effectiveness in telling a story and setting a mood, which which is more important in the cinematic milieu. CM, but- what are your opinions? <laughs> I, I feel really put on the spot and underprepared. I think I read the wrong thing for this episode. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. We're, we read the second half of The Colorado Kid. Somehow less happened <laughs> in the second half of this book than the first half. So I thought we could have a nice little chat. Our new segment, <laughs> Movies, y'all. <laughs> oh. I oh, like that this book has inspired you to create new segments for our show. I think it's what's been missing, man. So many people say we don't have enough segments. I can't. <laughs> Brian Burnett, when he suggested this book, he's like, I, lo- I, I want you to hear you talk about this book, but can you talk about something else for a while? <laughs> Can you can you skirt the issue? <laughs> can you thread the needle of okay. irony and dismissal? <laughs> but do you guys think that part of that's our fault? We did break up this tiny book into two parts. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, that's something I wanted to talk about because I, I think we've done this book kind of a disservice by splitting it up. It, it is, I feel like as one piece, very good. This actually reminds me of... You say Annihilation, I'm going (laughs) to... No, it reminds me of the first time I saw There Will Be Blood. Because I went into it with absolutely no idea what I was going into it. And I thought the movie was going to be one thing. And then it wasn't that thing. And I thought, I hated it. (laughs) <laughs> because it what it defied my expectations of what I thought it was going to be. This was the same thing by splitting it up into two pieces, the whole first half searching for clues. Everything is a clue and waiting that two weeks to record our part two, I, I went into the second half being like, okay, here it comes. It's all going to come together. And the book never specifically has told us (laughs) that is not what this is. Right. Which is something that I feel is, it slapped me in the face for being an idiot. (laughs) But I think it's because we're so used to these, these books that are about mysteries, these unsolved mysteries, and no one's ever solved them. And then one plucky youth comes along and connects two dots that have never been connected before and blows the case mm-hmm. wide open. And that's like the entirety of the mystery genre is mm-hmm. one missed clue ties everything together. So you're waiting for her to be like, hey, what about this? And for them to be like, what the fuck? <laughs> Where have you been for 20 years? Find my smoked carp. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag find CM's carp. Huh. It's, yeah, it's. I felt how I'm sure a lot of people felt when they first read this. I felt cheated at first, right as I put it down. I was like, what the fuck? 
But the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized, like, Stephen King spends the entire book <laughs> saying over and over and over again, there's no answer. There's This is all nothing. Not and subtext. He, and he, it's in the text. <laughs> he delivers that, and I... It took some time to come around to, but uh, I actually really think it's interesting. Yeah. Don't know if I like it, but <laughs> I think it's interesting. Well, uh, by the end of this episode, I think you'll know. Anyway, uh, let, let's recap. In the first half of the book, we listen to two very old men, Vince Tag and Dave Bowie. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Tell Stephanie, last name. <laughs> Stephanie Ingenue, uh, a truly unexplained mystery. A man in 1980 is found dead on a beach in a small Maine island town, and no one knows what happened other than he choked on a piece of steak. And that's pretty much all we got from the first half of the book. Yeah, alarmingly brief. Yes. But we pick right up with more clues in the biggest finger quotes you can imagine. <laughs> so we, uh, may I go through the evidence? Absolutely. So, I actually have a note saying, this is a lot of stuff. I sure hope Josh and CM wrote them down. <laughs> uh, so we've talked about that uh, Devane was uh, instructed not to look into the evidence bag by the two cops he was with. Paul he, Devane, who Paul was Devane. A, a student uh, forensic examiner. Yeah, uh, but he did because he's a rogue lawyer. <laughs> and uh, in the evidence bag were his, not his, the the bodies, the his wedding ring, $17, some change, a Russian coin of some kind, a roll of certs, a pack of big red with one piece missing, a book of matches with only one strike mark, and a pack of cigarettes, minus one or two cigarettes. It, it's so more specific than that. He is specifically carrying a 10, a 5, and two ones, and approximately a buck in change. <laughs> and I wrote down, these sound an awful lot like clues, but I've been burned before. <laughs> uh, you've been jaded by Detective Stephanie Ingenue. <laughs> I want that series now. We have all of these pieces of, of evidence, and it says that it's not until 16 months later that any of this ever comes back. At the the cliffhanger of the last episode is that uh, that Paul Devane figures it out when he dates uh, uh, his girlfriend's dad smokes, and it's because he sees that there's the that stamp on a cigarette package and it clicks for him. And it's a very cool reveal that it then says that took him from being John Doe to the Colorado kid to Mr. James Cogan of Nederland, Colorado. My really poorly written detective series mind really wanted the dad to be the killer. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> because it was like, oh, he he started to figure stuff out when he started dating this girl and and her dad smoked. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> He smoked, and that guy had cigarettes, mm -hmm. but, and he but, killed it. I don't know. <laughs> but Paul Devane isn't even from Colorado. He has nothing to do with... What a wild anything. twist that would have been. Right? Would have been. I, He's a smoker. I put down a few, a few times, like, wouldn't it be wild if this was just the mystery? I, I'll get to it. There's one part in this... That, that kind of bugged me uh, about the stamp, which is the big clue, mm. is that cigarette packs have stamps on the bottom that tell what state they're from. For the state tax. We got that at the end of the last chapter. Stephanie goes, oh, the state tax stamp. And then in this chapter, they explain state tax stamps. <laughs> and I'm like, no, we got it. Yeah, I got it the first time. I noticed that too. I, my note for this chapter was almost... Chapter nine again. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, this is it pretty clear what you meant by state tax stamp. And also Steph is the one. They're the only three in the room. Yeah. We're not there. And Steph figured it out. So why are they explaining <laughs> it to her? Well, the only important thing is that they, they recap this information, but they go the extra mile to say that 
even the the pack of cigarettes only having one missing and being from Colorado, plus the medical examiner saying flat out there's like no signs of in his lungs. He is not a smoker, which makes this pack an even bigger clue. Yeah, I wrote down. This is the example I was going to give. Why did a non-smoker have the cigs in the first place? Mm -hmm. How funny would it be if that was the unsolved mystery? (laughs) Everything else, (laughs) they know. But they're like, we could not tell the Boston Globe that this non-smoker had a pack of cigarettes. (laughs) It would blow people's minds. That would be the most low stakes <laughs> mystery in the world. The book goes on for uh, Dave has to explain that he went to the coroner's office and checked the stamp and then checked that the stamp meant what the stamp meant. And it's kind of like watching a bad movie where they have to show the characters driving between each scene. We can't just assume that they drove there. We have to see them in the car. Oh, I think that also, like, it goes back to the fact that this is, first of all, this is a story they've been sitting on for 20 years. Mm. A story they have not told to anyone outside of the two of them. So part of me wonders if they are so excited to finally be sharing this story with the right person that they aren't paying attention to what doesn't matter. Or if it is uh, jumping ahead a little bit, the uh, one of the big themes with this book is about passing something on. And I wonder if by the end of it, we're supposed to get the idea that because we don't know what clues are and are not important, they want to give her literally every detail, no matter how inconsequential it may seem Mm -hmm. you know that actually makes uh, i didn't think of it this way until literally just now (laughs) but it's like the what do they call it they they mention it in the first section the tag when evidence is gathered from a crime scene there has to be signatures from every person that handles the evidence showing every step of the way the chain of custody chain of custody so that nothing is missing. This is like the storytelling version of that. Uh, I take it back. That's actually kind of clever. Yeah. Either that, or they just tell stories like my mom. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom, and according to Devin, me. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel really attacked right now, CM? Yes. And next time I'm going to be like, baby, listen, I'm just trying to give you the chain of custody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i also wasn't re- sure if you were referring to your husband or us as baby <laughs> right <then>. babies <laughs> when i start calling you guys pet names that's we're done <laughs> uh, call me fatty daddy oh, okay. uh, i don't know why you had to do that uh, i have to ruin everything anyway um there is one thing that i latched on in this chapter which is they, in his search for seeing the, the pack of cigarettes to make sure that the stamp is there, he says he has to, he tells a story about how he has to be kind of careful because these two shitty cops who were so awful to Paul Devane and kind of bullied him are still on active duty. And they briefly mention the murder in Tinnock again, mm-hmm. which is the town outside across the river from Moose Lookit Island. And I wrote, this has to be relevant. (laughs) As my notes go, I just become more and more (laughs) full of existential anxiety (laughs) of like, this has to mean something. Did you ever hit a point where you were worried that you because and this is a question to both of you because we all three have were reading this looking for the deeper clues and around this point did you start worrying that you missed a clue three chapters back there's a few times where i'm like uh i don't remember what it is and there's a certain point where they mention a character or an event and stephanie they act like oh stephanie figured that out from something oh it's a T for the Tillerman. Ah. She okay. figures out something because of the phrase T for the Tillerman. 
I did not remember that coming up at any point. <laughs> and so I'm like, was that a clue I missed? Gotcha. DM? No, at this point, I didn't because I had accepted what Mr. King has been telling us. <laughs> you So you'd given up? Wow, no. <laughs> I wouldn't call that giving up. Jeez. No, that's interesting that you... Because it, it was never even a question in my mind that... No, literally, there's no answer. This... I was sure by the end of the book, we would at least know something Actually, about how he ended up there. I have you guys to thank for me being willing to to continue this book and to finish it with the understanding that I would never be satisfied. Huh. That I was not going to get that answer I craved because of our discussion around the breathing method. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Huh. Because what, what frustrated... Ben, you more so, and Josh, I think you to to some degree as well. What frustrated you guys about that story was that it it's kind of just like a tease. It's like this little glimpse, mm-hmm. and we want more. We want the whole thing. But for me, that let my imagination just go crazy because it allowed me to build up the world myself, which it, it's like... When you don't want to see the monster because you're worried mm. it's going to look stupid. <laughs> and in your head, you've imagined this amazing thing and you don't want to be disappointed. So I kind of approached it the same way I did the breathing method that, yeah, that I'm going to close this book and I'm going to be thinking about this mystery and I will never have the answer. That's fascinating and makes me feel like an idiot. Yeah, well, I've always, <laughs> really said, that, does. I've always said that CM is substantially smarter than us. Well, that's <laughs> obvious. Yeah. But yeah, I, it was never a question in my mind. I was, uh, in fact, yeah. when we get to the final chapter, I'll tell you what, I have a bad habit of like trying to figure stuff out before the thing. It drives my girlfriend crazy because I'll be like, we'll watch a movie and I'll be like, oh, I know what's going to happen next. And I was certain what I, I knew what the last <laughs> oh, chapter God, was going to be. I can't wait. And I'm very excited to hear your guys' theories. Can I ask one more? It, it's plot relevant, I promise. We talk about him going and he sends out the sleeping IDs all around Colorado. And then we finally, when we finally find out about his his family, how did that hit you guys? I, okay, you know what? I'm just going to get this out of here and then we can move on from it. I was really annoyed that we had to know that his wife was chubby. <laughs> <laughs> it, that drove me crazy. Yeah. Because there's this weird bit at the end of chapter 13 where uh, one of the guys, Vince, I think, says she wasn't what I expected either. I had the wrong picture in my head. And he says that he he had pictured, he makes an allusion to someone out of a poem, a forlorn lover uh, like Lenore in, in Poe. And then he wanders off and talks about dead bodies not looking like people anymore. (laughs) But the kid's body was handsome. And Dave says, sounds like true love to me. And I I reread that passage four times (laughs) because I thought I missed something. I think what our beloved author was trying to convey is that this handsome fella. Yeah, and then literally the beginning of the next chapter, I just wrote, oh, he just meant she was ugly. Cool. Like, well, okay. Also, I, she just had a baby six months ago. Get off her dick. And her, her yeah. husband is missing. Yes. Like, what an asshole. I would like to continue my frustrating exercise in trying to excuse everything King does. Because I love him so much. <laughs> Do you guys think that the way... Um, he he took the time to highlight that this woman was not in my mind. I, I wasn't seeing her as sort of like a you know a romantic poetic love, but more like a femme fatale. Like they were expecting an attractive woman, someone that you would get on the cover of one of these hard case crime novels, and you'd also get a resolution to the mystery. So King not only is telling us this is different. This is the, I'm setting this apart because there is no resolution, and also. There is no femme fatale. It's just this average woman who lost her husband. All right. I don't know if this is... Wait, was she... She was a redhead, right? Yep. Yes. She was a literal red herring. (laughs) 
No, that doesn't work. <laughs> she didn't think she was the killer. <laughs> you did. You thought she could be until they described her as being not a femme fatale. Oh, no, no, no. That's not what I meant. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm that's saying, not what a femme fatale is. A femme fatale isn't necessarily a killer. Oh, yeah. I, I just mean the your your typical yeah. uh, female character that you Sultry, slinky. Yeah. yeah. The lady who walks into the detective's office. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who looked like she was poured into that dress and no. someone <laughs> forgot to say when. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's be kind and say it was a subversion of tropes. It's just with Vince and Dave's constant mentions of Stephanie's youth and beauty, it all comes out as very (sighs) King. For better or worse. Love you, Mr. King. (laughs) I want to go back. There's one little bit where after they've discovered that James Cogan, 42, He is a commercial artist for a Denver ad agency and lives just west of Boulder. Stephanie has to ask Vince and Dave to spell his name because he says all she hears are a bunch of A sounds with an L in the middle. What the fuck is the main accent? I would like us all to go around and try to pronounce Kogan. As a bunch of A sounds with an L in the middle. <laughs> all right. Logan. Cogan. Yeah. Cogan. James Cogan. James Cogan. Sometimes dad is butter. Sometimes. <laughs> what did you just say to me? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the line, right? Sometimes dad is butter. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, Pet cemetery, man. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, <laughs> See, I made that joke on her when we did yeah, that cemetery. I, fuck. I forgot. <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> but also the important thing is we fi- like, we're we getting all this info on James Cogan, but no one, she's she doesn't have any idea why he'd be in Maine. No one has any idea why mm-hmm. he'd be in Maine. And that's he, it's crazy. He uh, is a, a loving family man who loved his job. Everybody loved him. There's no motive. It's decided. I am going to, from this moment forward, put a bunch of weird shit in my pocket (laughs) that has nothing to do with my personality or lifestyle (laughs) so that if I'm ever found dead, there will just be a perpetual mystery. To clarify, you don't want your mysterious death solved ever. Yeah. Got it. Right. (laughs) That... Makes no sense. I'll have to delete this episode. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Send please, an apology to Bryant. Please <laughs> no one murder CM. <laughs> or just check her pockets. <laughs> so they're, they're talking. At some point, they go inside and get more coffee. And Steph, Steph says she puts on coffee in case the story goes on for another hour or so. How the fuck long has this story been going? That's a great question. In like real time, if I had to guess, they, honest, yes, they had lunch and then they watched the sunset. Basically, well, they didn't start the story at lunch. They started the story after. when they got back from lunch. And it's a small town, yeah, so like fifteen minutes maybe. And they had a break to get some muffins, to get some coke, to talk about random stuff. If I would have had to guess, this story has been going on for. 10 to 15 minutes, and that's all. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're trying... In book time, I feel like it's been five to six hours. But, well, if, if they got home from lunch and the sun is setting, depending on the time of year, all that, all that mm-hmm. stuff, if we just assume that sun sets seven or eight oh, o'clock... Oh, Josh, you're such a coroner. No, <laughs> We know that the sun sets exactly at this time, so they have to be telling the story. <laughs> we never know. It's just going to be a perpetual I, mystery. That's I, the unsolved mystery. I'm starting sunset. to think of this finger as my telling the story at sunset finger. <laughs> anyway... They have a big printing press in the corner. And this is the part where I think I was starting to lose my grip a little. Because I wrote, there's a big printing press I don't use anymore. None of this matters, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I was starting to lose my hope at the, this point. The ennui's seeping in. <laughs> it really <laughs> was. So they're now inside and they're having their coffee. And they're talking about Arla Kogan, who is the Colorado kid's wife. There's this one quick passage 
they say something. Oh, uh, she, she comes to Maine to see the body and identify him. And Stephanie says, you must have went and met her at the airport because you were her only friends in Maine. And there's this short passage that says, it made her realize Arla Kogan had been a real person and not a chess piece in an Agatha Christie whodunit. And I wanted to get you guys' opinion on this because to me, that just smacked of King trying his best to use a shortcut to make us give a shit about this character. Because she's not a real person. She is an archetype. She's the grieving wife. We don't know anything else about Arla Kogan. She's a 2D person in a story being told by the three characters that we actually know and care about. This seemed like King going like, hey, remember, these are all, these are people and you should care about them. And I just didn't. (laughs) And was that just me? So there's a part later where this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit in the timeline, but they talk about the insurance company mm-hmm. and she needs to know, she needs to be able to prove that he did not commit suicide, that he's dead. He's not missing like all this mm-hmm. stuff for insurance purposes. And I did think that King did a good job of making her a person when He's sort of explaining, like, it seems cold and callous, Mm -hmm. but she had a family to support. She was suddenly by herself, and she needed this resolution, not just for uh, emotional purposes, but for practical purposes. And I don't know why exactly, but something about that really touched me. I think it's because in any other story, we would have had the grieving widow come Mm -hmm. in, identify the body, uh, have a, a, an emotional breakdown and then exit the story forever. Mm-hmm. This having that follow up that you don't normally get, I think takes that step towards she is a real person because mm-hmm. these are the real consequences. Sure. When, when you lose somebody, especially a spouse mysteriously and unexpectedly, it causes so many problems. Mm-hmm. And that this is, I don't know if this is the way I mean to say it, but it's the way I'm going to say it. <laughs> They can't give James Cogan a resolution. But right. They can give Arla a resolution. Hmm. So we're never we're not getting the end of his story. So let's get the end of hers. Yeah, I like th- those are all really good points, and I agree that the the insurance angle later on does humanize her a lot. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's stuck this one line. So much earlier than that. Yeah. I agree with you on that angle. It, it was jarring at that point because I'm like, okay, why is she feeling that way now? I don't know. It, it was just jarring. Yeah. Me. Cause I mean, like, why not this just isn't... wait until you actually humanize her a bit? <laughs> well, and she should feel this way about every character. Like, this should not be the first time she's thought, man, this is a real person. Everybody in the story has been a real person. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a very, this is a book. And it's a very, like, weird, hey, remember, remember this, all these people are real. Yeah, I think I, I think, that, I think weird... that line would have hit better after we hit the resolution of her story. Yeah. Instead of the, the other way around. Yeah, that's true. It's a I book, agree. you can put it wherever you want it. That's true. <laughs> now, we're about to get to where um, Vince says the through line ends. That this is where... The true mystery is revealed. Uh, In chapter 15 out of 18. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But before that, there's kind of a neat interchange between him and Stephanie. Stephanie calls Vince the one who always has to know. And he replies, well, is that you too? And she says, yes, of course it is, without hesitation. And I loved that because it, it something about the phrasing sounded ceremonial almost to me. It had a weird weight to it. Like passing the torch. Yes. Well, in that if you did get your question answered from the first part regarding what happens to Vince in this book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's yeah, it's I loved just that little feeling of these two are so similar 
and all they care about is the truth. It, it felt very uh, important. I don't know. They're the they're the newsmen you want. Like they're the newsmen you root for. They're the good guys. They're people that in uh, a story about corruption, they would be the person who puts their life on the line to to bring the truth to light. They're that that passionate, and it really it shows. Going into the anticlimax of the book, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Which one of you would like to lay out the final mystery? I actually really liked this part <laughs> because of just the way they set it up and they went through each piece and it kept building and building. And as they were talking about these things, like I was in my head, not trying to solve it anymore, but thinking, wait, how is that possible? Like, are is there going to be any resolution to any piece of this mystery or is it all just going to elude us? And it does. <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to build one of those like wall timelines <laughs> to like tack it all up because I was still very deep in solving this at this <laughs> point. Mr. What do we call him? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So he goes to work and he as we said, he works at an advertising agency. He's a, a pretty good artist. They kind of go into that a little bit. Apparently his wife is an artist as well, which is kind of cool. That was Wednesday, April 23rd, 1980. And then by midnight of that same day, that is when he would be, that's when the coroner said he probably died. I, I It's not relevant at all, but I love that they go to point the links to point out his specialty at the ad agency is drawing, quote, holy shit women, which in that advertisement is just a woman holding a carton of cigarettes. And you just look at it and you go, oh, holy shit. No, that's not what it is. Not? It's a woman looking at a Tupperware container going, holy shit, this stores my food so well. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the 80s. <laughs> I misremembered that entire sequence. <laughs> I like your version of Thank it. Thank you. What I also really liked is that they do go out of their way to explain that this isn't like, there wasn't any issue at work. There were no enemies he wasn't doing badly at his job. He was satisfied. Like there was nothing in his life that indicated anything was amiss or or there's anything going on that the people closest to him were not aware of. He loved his job. He loved his wife. He just had a, a baby son. I was called it a fresh baby son. <laughs> <laughs> mm, smell that fresh baby son uh, straight out the oven. Don't have kids. But, um, no, he just, he had a newborn baby and he loved his baby. So he had this nice life that seemed to be what he wanted it to be and what he had built it to be. So he leaves at 6.45 a.m. He leaves home with his portfolio and he's wearing a gray suit, a white shirt, red tie and a gray overcoat black loafers, no green jacket, which I'm not sure we talked about in the first episode, though. We did a little we? bit. Yeah, that he was seen in the fish and chips shop. And he may or in, may not have had a, gray, a green yes. jacket. Yeah, so what happened to the jacket if he had this jacket? He also wasn't wearing a tie when they found him. So where's his tie and where's his jacket? He had uh, arrived at his office by 8.45 that morning. And at 10.15, he left because he was going to get a sandwich and some coffee. And he had an exchange with his coworker George. I wrote down, uh, he chatted with another artist. I refuse to write down or remember his name. If they can't be bothered to remember, neither can I. Because <laughs> <laughs> they do a very King thing of they can't remember his name. And so they refer to him as a long, complicated phrase every time he's mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Funny they can't remember his name, though, because these two guys remember literally every detail <laughs> yeah. about this story. So anyway, this guy, George, was the last person to see the Colorado kid in Colorado. And he couldn't remember if he was wearing his jacket, which drove me crazy. Because yeah. I immediately was like, oh, okay, well, there we go. Did he have a jacket? Who knows? <laughs> and it's about this time that I'm also wondering, okay, well, how long does it take to get from Colorado to Maine? Which is also Steph's question. He was last seen in Colorado at 10.20 a.m. He was in Tinoc? Yeah. At 5.30 p.m., he was eating fish and chips, and there's a two-hour time difference between those two. So that gives us five hours for him to make this journey. Yeah, when he was last seen in Colorado, it was already noon in Maine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, the, of course, they check the flights. They Do you guys want to talk about, like, this whole flight thing? All of this, like, commercial and private? They, they talk about how commercial air flight would have been impossible. Right. And they, they go through and rule out exactly why that there was no flights directly from Colorado to Bangor, which is the nearest airport to Moose Lookit. They say that it, the only possibility, the only possibility is a chartering a private plane and that it is impossible to find any paper uh, paper trail. Yeah, no cash withdrawals, no purchasing of tickets, like no money missing. They, and they just, airports just didn't keep records back then. Mm-hmm. So they say they can't prove it. But when Stephanie says... Or when Vince says, but that's what happened, Stephanie asks why, and Vince gets a little mad and says, because that's the only thing that could happen. Mm -hmm. What is it? Who does that remind you of, guys? Sherlock Holmes. Ralph Anderson. Oh! (laughs) Yeah! Because he has has that same conversation with himself. (laughs) Ralph Anderson was stuck to it until it was too late to it can't be anything supernatural Mm -hmm. it has to be the the sherlock holmes if you rule out anything that's impossible what remains is the truth so this whole thing there's a few points where where vince says no this has to happen because it's literally the only thing that could have happened i fucking love that yeah me too because there is never a mention of anything supernatural in this book, but it's on the edges. <laughs> what if the reason they can't solve the mystery of how the Colorado kid got there is because the way he got there is impossible? That's a really good point. Oh my God, I figured it out. I hope you guys or any of our fans get this reference. He rode with the Night Flyer. Oh, I haven't read that one. I honestly thought you were going to reveal your carp. <laughs> I figured it out. I ate it. I ate my smoked carp. Uh, you guys, we've been kinged. Yeah, that, <laughs> I mean, you, there, it, there's so much evidence in other King stories to back up that. I mean, we honestly, he could have honestly gone to get a sandwich, fallen down the rabbit hole, and been gone for longer than yeah, we think, and he just took a wrong turn and wound up on a highway in hiding. Like, exactly, it's anything, and that really. There's a line where they're talking about Arla Kogan, uh, the kid's wife, and they're talking about the evidence. And Arla says he was happy. There's no way that he could have ran away. And Stephanie says, "But that's what she thinks happened anyway, right?" And Vince responds, Arla Kogan's like all of us, a prisoner of the evidence. And that line is basically the thesis to the outsider. And I love that. God damn, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I really hope I leave behind a cool mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Just personally, I hope that we find the listener who murdered you. <laughs> <laughs> God, where were we? <laughs> uh, so uh, I'll pick up the, the timeline. So we we know he took a flight to Banger. He would have landed in. She, they, they say hypothetically, as we time things out, the it's like a five and a half hour trip from Colorado to Banger. So say he landed at 405. That leaves him two hours to get to Tinnock, eat and catch the ferry. So he, in order to pull this off, he had to coordinate having three hired drivers because somebody had to be waiting for him. He had to have two cars already laid out for him and one plane on standby. And that is when Steph lands on the biggest question that they've never been able to solve and never will. What could be so important to make the kid go to these lengths? Mm -hmm. The final mystery is why. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, because it was the the cause of death. We know. Yeah, that we we've we've talked about that. 
Steph thinks that it's murder at first. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nobody said murder. Because we know how we died. It's so weird, though. The entire time I'm reading this, in my head, it's still murder. Yes! Because the mystery around it is so, so weird that I can't accept an accidental death. And this is, uh, I also, I skipped over another clue that is very important to my my theory about the kid is that uh guard the the ferryman was mm-hmm. brought coffee by someone and might have said this has been a long time coming or something similar and they think that could have been the kid that did that yeah there's definitely more that we just don't know he was a russian spy Whoa! He was meeting with spoilers. Save it for the end. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is also where it gets kind of to my favorite part because motive is I I love motive. Motive so (laughs) much because it's so much fun to talk about. But when you boil it down to it, which they do, they they ask Steph to tick off what are the the four classic motives: sex, money problems and and Uh, change for change yeah and madness (laughs) which i also love that vince refers to the madness and the change as geographical cures (laughs) like you just go somewhere and it's i love that too um i may have mentioned on this podcast my favorite band the mountain goats listen to the mountain goats are amazing (laughs) but uh john darneal has a series of songs all beginning with the phrase going to uh going to port washington going to georgia which is canceled sorry look it up all these songs going to different places and all of them the major theme is a person trying to go to a different place to solve his problem which is exactly i love that phrase geographical cures um that's what that album should have been called <laughs> yeah i i love that, that so that's this part of what drives me nuts but also i find exhilarating about this story because then i i keep wondering was he going to go back like he worked so hard to get there but it almost seemed as if he he didn't in my head he didn't know he was going there until he got on the elevator and left. That's I impossible. Disagree. I know. It's impossible <laughs> because he had to make all these arrangements, but just the way he was he was acting and the things in his life, I f- part of me is just like this thing happened to him and he responded and he reacted so efficiently and quickly that that's why things don't add up. But Vince posits that that can't be happening. He had to have been prepared at least a little bit because he believes that the cigarettes, the reason he has the cigarettes when he's not a smoker, is specifically a sign. He knew that he was going into trouble, and if something went wrong, he wanted the cigarettes and the stamp on them to be a sign that said, I'm from Colorado, look for me there. So I think he did know something was up. But do you think he intended to come back at all? No. Question we can never know. And not necessarily because he thought he was going to die. Oh, Josh says no. You say yes. I say maybe. Yeah. This is. uh, (laughs) Those are all the options. Yeah. (laughs) We've got. Well, so uh, another clue we also discover is that Arla. The fact that he had cigarettes and the Russian coin, she can't think of a single reason why that would have happened. And his wallet has never been recovered anywhere. It's never been found there or along the journey in any way. why it's murder. (laughs) Okay, so this brings us to the end of chapter 17, the start of the final chapter of the book. Before we get to it, I want to explain what I was expecting. Okay. Chapter 17 ends with Stephanie saying to Vince, you have to have some theories. And Vince responds, what is it you really want to know, Stephanie? Tell us. And something about that back and forth is so like, why are you really here? (laughs) I wrote down, okay, is this book about to blow my fucking mind? (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I was expecting, and yes, it's (laughs) far-fetched. 
I was expecting the last chapter to be from the Colorado kids' point of view. Oh, God, that would have been awesome! Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I expected this to be, we see what happens. But that, but then the characters are still left never knowing. And then it's not that at all. That would be very King, though. What's more infuriating? That we know, but we know the characters don't know, and they'll never know? Or that none of us know? Oh, none of us know. Easy. Because if we know, know, then we know. Uh, We've said too much. (laughs) We also haven't spent enough time with these characters to be that emotionally invested in their journey to to carry the burden of their unknowing. (laughs) So instead, what we get is Stephanie, what she really wants to know, which made me laugh really hard, was, come on, he was murdered, right? (laughs) (laughs) I wrote, the twist of a book can't be, it's not murder. (laughs) 17 chapters, psych, it was murder. (laughs) We fucking got you. You're fired. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very elaborate test. So she's like, come on, you can tell me. He was murdered. And they say, no, it was not a, this isn't a murder mystery. But they do tell her what they really think. They Vince thinks that Jim knew he was in trouble. He had the cigarettes specifically as a sign to help the investigators. He thinks that there was another person involved that gave gave him the Russian coin and the stake, and he thinks there are no answers. Oh, God. Stephanie gets so upset about this wrap-up because just like me, and I presume Ben, but CM was above (laughs) it all, are just frustrated even though we knew this was not going to have an ending they said it multiple times but they have they've passed the chain of custody of the story (laughs) on to stephanie and uh and it ends with them offering her a job and which i love that because that's something that with as little as we get of their lives in this whole story you get enough to know that that is something she's battling with Mm -hmm. i was hoping you were going to say as little as we get of their lives, we get even less of Stephanie's because <laughs> there's one sentence where she's like, I think I'd like that, even though Rick will be sad. And I'm like, fucking Rick. Who the hell's Rick? Fucking rough break, buddy. Not getting not getting mentioned until like three pages from the end. Uh, oh, Rick got it rough in this book. Poor Rick. <laughs> This is a great moment because it is, they've talked about that she has shown the signs of being one of them. Yeah. And that's why they're even giving her this story. And now that everything's passed on, they know that, you know, she's young. If she loves this place and they feel like she's the future in this, this newspaper on this island, that maybe 10, 15 years from now, she has this story in her head. Maybe something will come up someday. Someone could solve this. And now she gets to, to carry that forward. That's the book. Uh, It ends with her staring at a picture of the picture of the UFO. What do they call them? The coast lights. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And her thinking about, you know, life is a mystery and that that's the end. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I don't, I think they passed on a really good lesson to her, though. You know, if they're passing the torch and they're not going to be around, they know that if anybody comes around digging for anything in their town, that their town is in good, capable hands. Sure. Well, I think the the most important thing, the thing that really resonated with me in this ending is circling back to lunch at with the Boston Globe guy at the very mm-hmm. beginning and saying the reason... At first, when they don't bring up the Colorado kid to the Boston Globe, the initial response is like, well, we we didn't tell it because it's not a story. 
And that's kind of, it's kind of a dismissive response to it. It's not true at all. Though. It's not. But when you get. <laughs> yes. But when you get to the end, it is the fact that if they did tell this story to a writer who was writing articles, that writer would force their hand and add an ending or embellish a clue. They would steer you in a certain direction and they would have forced a lie onto a dead man's life for 15 minutes of fame. That's what we're going to do, right? Yes. With Uh, with your death. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. So hold on. You guys just agreed that the story isn't a story. Is that correct? No. Or no, you disagreed. Okay, because (laughs) this is the final thing I wanted to talk about. They keep saying this story isn't a story. And once it comes to what the real mystery is, that how did he get to Maine, that it's possible but so unlikely, there's a point where Jess Jess, uh, sits back and is like, wow, you're right, this isn't a story. This is like... What the, the metaphor she uses is, um, it's like riding a bike across a tightrope that isn't there. First of all, the fuck does that mean? That's just falling. <laughs> <laughs> and second of all, bullshit. <laughs> How is this a not a story? Because here's the thing. Tell a story that's not a story. Well, I don't know what they mean. It's... It's not a story because there's no real resolution. And I, and I think we talked about this a little bit last episode, that the story is a story, but it's not a news story. Like, it's not a it's not a satisfying, here is a story with a real beginning, middle, and end. This is, uh, it's a tale, not a story. A bullshit. <laughs> Why is it? D.B. Cooper, my friend. Oh, fuck. One of the most famous unexplained stor- mysteries. It's this. It's this. What's the difference between okay. the Colorado kid and DB Cooper? He jumped out of a plane. It is impossible that he survived, but he's never been found. See, I think, I think the difference with, uh, and we talked about some of the on, on the unsolved mysteries uh, last episode too. I think the difference is what the mystery is the mystery of db cooper for instance the mystery is the end we know the end of this we know where the colorado kid's story ended where his life ended what we don't know is how how we get there so when you tell this as a story you're like uh i have all the the timeline as i listed it off and then uh something happened and then they found his body. And that's the end of the story. Okay, but you're contradicting yourself. Because that's a, that's a beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> what I'm saying it's, is that the that that space, why it's not as as interesting as like the story of D.B. Cooper is because you have so like you have so much buildup, and it's a great mystery of what could have happened to him. Where did he go? Did he survive? Did he go to Costa Rica to live out his life on a naked beach? Uh, which is my theory about D.B. Cooper, if anybody's interested. <laughs> but this, I think where the the why is of why did he do this? So the just the mystery being in the middle instead of the end the motive, makes it... The motive is missing. We have, a, we have a string of facts, but there's no motive to give us, uh, to give the story, I don't know, any emotional uh, consequence. Without, without any emotion, it's just a string of facts. And I think that the since the motive is the emotion and that's missing, that's what makes it not a story. Okay. Well, here's my argument. Sure. They spent a whole afternoon telling her a story. <laughs> <laughs> and it was intriguing. So intriguing that she's going to think about it for years. Yeah. That's a story, my friend. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's in a book. It's a story in a book. It is a story. I don't know. It, but the story's not a story. The story of telling the story is a story. The story itself's not a story. I think it's just an expression. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That solves it. Touche. <laughs> All right. Uh, should we go or uh, give off what our theories are? 
If, if does everybody have have their yeah. theory? I'll find one. <laughs> All right, CM. What's your theory? It must have been thrown away by mistake. Your car. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. You know what? Let's move on. <laughs> I, I think that's as, as good a place to end this as anywhere. All right. So um, that brings us to the end of the book and our ratings. Who would like to, to start us off? I'll go. All right. Uh, this uh, in, in the like postscript, Stephen King has a whole thing written about writing the story and how it's inspired by a real article very loosely that just made him think of this idea. And he specifically says, you'll love it or you'll hate it. I doubt there's any middle ground. And I agree with that. There's probably very little middle ground. Uh, you might be surprised. But. <laughs> very I, soon. <laughs> yeah, I, I am existing in that middle ground. Because I will also be thinking about this story and this mystery. But I'm not going to reread this book ever again. And that's kind of where I'm torn because it's fun to talk about the mystery, but I, now that I have the story, I'll never need to revisit it. I think. And for that reason, and that reason alone, I'm going to give it three out of five blue chambray shirts. That's really interesting. Can I, can I go next? Because I want to go off of that. The exact opposite reaction. Oh, now that I know that this is not a mystery. This is a story about, mystery i am 100 percent sure i would benefit from reading this again i think it'll be a few years uh, uh i will read it again i also feel strange doing this right after the tommy knockers because this is an objectively better book <laughs> but based on simply how much i enjoyed reading it I have to give them the exact same score. (laughs) So, for the Colorado Kid, I'm going to give it three out of five blue chambray shirts with an asterisk. (laughs) That just means uh, this rating is more or less arbitrary. (laughs) Aren't all of our ratings just arbitrary? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I put a lot of thought into my ratings. As history (laughs) has dictated. I kind of already gave my rating of it when I was comparing it to the breathing method. And interestingly, I see the same sentiments in one line in King's afterward about how he's talking about fans might finish this book and be angry with him because he didn't provide a solution and he could have provided a number of solutions very easily. But he goes on to say, I'm not really interested in the solution, but in the mystery because it was the mystery, the the thing that inspired this story, that kept bringing me back to the story day after day. And for me, ah, it's just so my jams. <laughs> <laughs> I really dig that. And I, Josh, when you said you wouldn't read it again, I was trying to figure out if I would. I feel like I would come back to this book years from now. Maybe a few more years and it might take me to come back. I'd probably revisit Tommy Knockers actually before this because there's so much to dive into there. And, and this is uh, far less meaty than that. Hmm. But it probably is one that eventually I would I would just go back to and, and see if I felt any differently about it. Um, yeah, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Five out of five blue chambray shirts. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode where we will be continuing our Patreon selection series with Joel Jones's selection, Needful Things, where we will be reading through Chapter 7. For CM Alexander and Benjamin Graham, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you, feature stories are happy stories because they're over. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to The Colorado Kid, Part 2. We hope you enjoyed it. We would love to hear your theories about the big mystery. Please tell us on our social media at Dairy Public Radio, or send us an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. I personally still think it's in the trash, but maybe you'll surprise me. And thank you again to Bryant Burnett, 
for picking this book. It was so much fun. If you want to pick our next book, you can do that through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dairypublicradio. As always, please take a moment to give us some stars on Apple Podcasts. It's the only thing that keeps us visible to new listeners without having to join a network and add a bunch of ads into our shows, which we're hoping to avoid as long as possible. Thank you for all your support. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.